0: There's only one game left in a Toronto FC season that has really been over for a while now. The Reds take on Atlanta United on Sunday in decision day with pride and their recently set MLS single season points record on the line. There's 36 points separating the two teams heading into this match, capping off a Toronto FC year that they would sooner forget, but certainly have to learn from. My name is Mitchell Tierney. You are listening to the Footy Talks podcast. Ahead on the show, we will talk about the aforementioned TFC. We will also chat a bit of Liverpool and finish up with some Canadian soccer news I'd venture to say there's nobody else who could cover these three topics together better than our guest this week, Mr. Steve Gennaro from All In Sports Talk and Anfield Index. Steve, your return to the pod is long overdue. Thanks for making it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my pleasure, Mitchell. Always, again, always available and always happy to talk footy, especially with you, because uh, you're one of my favorite people in the
0: business. Wow, definitely appreciate that. Looking for... Looking for more of a co-host spot, I can see. Um, <laughs> but certainly uh, certainly a time maybe for some fiery Toronto FC talk, which I know you can provide. Um, before we talk about that, also on Sunday uh, is one of the biggest games of the year in soccer, the El Clasico between Real Madrid and Barcelona. Uh, you can check out a full preview of that match on the La Liga show, our Spanish League podcast, also on the Footy Talks Network. But as well as that, we are hosting a special footy talks event in collaboration with La Liga. Come out to the pint Toronto to watch the game. Enjoy a complimentary brunch if you are one of the first 100 fans through the door. Win prizes including official kits from both teams and take photos with the La Liga trophy. I'll be on a pre-game panel as well with Gareth Wheeler of TSN, Joshua Cloak of The Athletic as well. RSVP for free at homestand.ca slash events. Uh, it's a great way to spend your morning before the Toronto FC match. Um, and with the way things have been going lately, probably a more enjoyable way too. Um, full disclosure, Steve, I, I think it's been a long time since I've enjoyed watching a Toronto FC match. And uh, watching the the 401 Derby this past week, uh, that was an incredibly dire game even though um, obviously it meant something to Montreal. But uh, I can't remember the last time there's been a matchup between these two teams that uh, has just been that boring.
1: Yeah, it, it hasn't been a great season, has it? I mean, I'll tell you, um, I'm a season seat holder and have been for a long time, and I haven't I haven't been able to give tickets away for free hmm. to people. Like people won't even even this this uh, this coming Sunday. You know, um, I'm I'm unavailable to attend the match for uh, for personal reasons, and I mean, I can't give my tickets away. I mean, no nobody wants them. Nobody wants to go, and it's amazing how quickly uh, you know the. They've fallen out of fashion in the city, but Toronto's always been a city like that. The supporters here, not talking about the South End supporters or longstanding season seat holders, I just mean the general public of, mm-hmm. of the city of Toronto, has always been a, a very fickle fan base. When you're winning, they love you, and, and when you're not, uh, you know, unless you're the Maple Leafs, it's really hard to, to generate that long-term support. I mean, ask the Raptors, ask the Blue Jays what that feels like. And I think uh, Toronto FC was riding a wave last year and had everything where it needed to be. And if we're going to be honest and look back at this past season, I think it's their own arrogance that p- p- put them in this position. And the, uh, when I speak about the arrogance, I speak about the er- the arrogance of Tim Bezbachenko and, and Greg Vanny and uh, the entire front office staff as they approached this particular season. And that arrogance uh, we saw manifest in many ways and play itself out in many ways, including uh, sitting players during key season games early on, uh, re- releasing players uh, in in the in the um, in the expansion draft, who they probably should have protected, uh, you know, and then going out and, and, and uh, making international signings that they thought were better than some of the domestic players that they had in in hand, and it, it it's hard to believe given how much they got right for such a long period of time that things could go so sour so quickly. But again, I think sometimes when you when you see your position as being better than it really is, and it's it's easy to see that, of course, if you're at the parade last year, to imagine what you were in this city, uh, to to then. Uh, you know, uh, over, over um, overestimate your, your your value, and uh, the, the brand has certainly taken a hit. It has been a difficult summer and season to watch the quality of football, and and even more so just as a supporter. I mean, some of their interactions with supporters as well. I mean, it's it, it's been a it's been a bad year for TFC, and I mean, for a club that's had a, a a decade of bad years before success. I mean, this past season I think ranks right near the very top of some of the worst seasons that TFC has ever had.
0: As I mentioned off the top, one of the things that could make it worse, uh, kind of uh a... A terrible final epilogue to what's been a horrible season is the fact that their points record could fall on Sunday. Um, They have a bit of control over that. Obviously, if they get a win over Atlanta United, um, then they'll stop Atlanta from potentially doing it. But New York City, or New York Red Bulls rather, just need a win against Orlando City as well if they want to uh, get that points record. It seems like this thing is falling. and I don't know, that's, that's an interesting statement about the league and certainly about Toronto FC. That uh, one year after they set this this point record, uh, it's it looks like it's going to fall again.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's there's a couple of things that we can say here. First off, I was in Atlanta last year, uh, Mitchell, when when Toronto set the record. I was at that match, and uh, you know, Atlanta came out to win that game. They, they threw everything they had at Toronto FC because it wasn't even just about the record for them. It was about pride. They saw themselves as a better team than Toronto FC. Even last season, uh, as, as the season was closing down, they really felt like they were the better of the two teams. They were certainly disappointed to, to come away with a draw in a match that they felt they should have won. For those of you who don't remember, that's the Javinko josie beer game where the Atlanta fan <laughs> threw the beer. and uh, What a crazy and then, time. And uh, Gio then uh, picks it up and drinks it. Uh, but no doubt the the best team in major League Soccer right now and across the season has been Atlanta and I, I mean it, it's it's difficult, maybe for TFC fans to to consider, but I think that this Atlanta team that we've seen this year is the best team that's that's uh, ever played in uh, Major League Soccer. But you know, Atlanta fans should enjoy it because they're about to hit their own dive. You know, we know that uh, uh, Tito Martinez is already uh, rumored to be going to the Mexico uh, national team as their next manager. He's already said he's not returning to Atlanta, so he will not be back. And uh, you could expect at least one of their big players to be finding their way to Europe through the. The January transfer window, and so they're going to see their own demise, and they're also going to struggle with trying to balance between Champions League and domestic play, but I think that you're going to see a, a massive drop-off in what Atlanta can do uh, next year. Hopefully they will uh, not be as arrogant going into next season as Toronto FC was this year, and they'll be able to find sustained success which where, where we find the Red Bulls. I mean, talk about a club with sustained success, continually finding ways to get it done, even when, you know, for example, they lose what would be considered key, uh, key, key pieces, like Jesse Marsh, for example example uh, taking off and yet that hasn't slowed them down in in any way so uh, I do think the points record will fall this weekend I do think Red Bulls will beat Orlando City because they are not very good but I also think that a Toronto FC team with no Josie no Vasquez and a bunch of guys who really don't look like they want to play football anymore out there uh, I would be very surprised if Toronto FC comes away with a point this weekend
0: so would I and uh, there is a bit of a common thread between those two teams you mentioned is kind of the gold standard of MLS right now Atlanta United and of course the New York Red Bulls and that's youth uh, they've done it in kind of different ways. Obviously Atlanta United is a new club, so they've brought a lot of uh, foreign players and and youth players through different avenues in terms of transfers and and the likes and invested a lot of money there. New York Red Bulls have invested a lot of money in their academy and been able to develop a lot of young players uh, through that means. But Toronto FC, obviously this season, is one of the oldest teams in the league and a lot of those older players are still under contract for next season. Um, you know, how... Ha- does this team need to get younger? Because certainly, um, we we definitely saw some of the older legs uh, crumple a little bit this season.
1: Well, I mean that's a really interesting question, right? Because Mitchell, if you think about it, we could, we could you could make the argument that the reason why the team didn't win this year was because uh, you know the they they tried to shed some of their their age, right? You could certainly make the argument that. Uh, losing Betashore, I mean, mm-hmm. was a was a massive loss for this team. So you try and go younger, you try and go with Hasler, uh, you know, you you, you try and uh, you know bring in some some additional uh, bodies from 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 outside to try and, and help uh, fill up that back line. But I mean, you know, but yeah, more, not having more certainly hurt hurt them. Uh, sorry, Oro Junior is the player I'm referring to, mm-hmm. and uh, Vanderweil. You know, if you're wondering who those other uh, international players were, but I mean, like that that hurt them. I mean. What this team lacked this year, if you, in my opinion, wasn't an injection of youth, although I have a couple points on that we can talk about. What they lacked was professional Major League Soccer players. When TFC was poor, which was for a very long time, they were poor because they didn't have a squad that was made up of professional soccer players. And when they were successful, it's when they went out and got Moro, who later became an all star, but wasn't an all star when he came here. When they went out and got Moore, when they went out and got short, and they filled their back line with you know professional guys who understood the game, understood the travel in North America, and were committed to playing ninety minutes day in and day out in practice and in and on the pitch in the match. And that that was the biggest jump. It wasn't Javinko, Josie, Michael, although that was helpful. I mean, Josie, uh, Michael, and Javinko were not. You know, miles better than the Defoe, uh, Gilberto, uh, Michael combination that was there before. It was, it was the, the more, the moral, the beta shore. So I think you know, um, not having those uh, skilled, professional players who who are experienced actually hurt this team more than youth. Wow. (laughs) Sorry, if I I got I got. You know, well, I'm, I'm, well, well, I'm,
0: well, I'm fired up as well. <laughs> keep going.
1: Well, I read on the youth part of it, though. I do again think this comes down to a little bit of the. Uh, of the arrogance and, a, and, and and again, I don't know the inner workings of this, but you tell me how Ayo Akinola doesn't get more minutes on this team for the duration of this season. You know uh, from the moment he came and began uh, up to, to start playing with the first team in the spring, he was immediately demonstrating that he's ready to play first team football in North America. We know that there's been interest from Europe. We know that last summer he flirted with, uh, with Paris Saint Germain and there was some interest there and TFC worked hard to keep him here. I know we talk about uh, we'll talk about Canada a little later on you know Alfonso Davies uh, balutabla these players here you know with Barcelona and Bayern but I would argue that the best player uh, the best Canadian uh, international potential Canadian international because he hasn't been capped yet for Canada or the United States in the under twenty four range is actually uh, Iowa canola and I think the upside for what he can do is outstanding and to not have him play major minutes this summer I think is a huge disappointment and to then to, instead to try and fill that void up top with this uh, you know this revolving circle of players who simply aren't good enough that we continue to see over and over again, uh, for me, was was very disappointing. Add to that Raheem being uh, shipped out or lost in the expansion draft. I mean, I think just those two players alone, uh, Raheem and Iowa Canola, TFC fans would feel a lot better about themselves and where this team was going if both those players saw major minutes this, uh, over the past season, even if we didn't make the playoffs. If both the, those young players saw major minutes, you'd feel a lot better going forward.
0: I don't know if I'm quite as high on Akinola as you are, but I definitely agree with the sentiment. Another player who I kind of saw that with was Liam Frazier. I thought Liam Frazier deserved to have more minutes. He was very professional in any of the games he played in. I know he's behind Michael Bradley in the pecking order, and and he's never going to get a game that way, but I don't see it as though they they need to be mutually exclusive. I think that... One of them, you know, I think that they can play both of them in the midfield. And uh, I was very surprised to not see Toronto FC do that. So um, I'd agree. I think there was some some youth players that we definitely could have seen get more minutes this season, uh, especially towards the end of things, as it was pretty clear that this team wasn't going to make the playoffs. Uh, the, the, one of the big bits of news for Toronto FC this week, of course, was the salary numbers being revealed. Um, always a, a bit of a revelation in terms of whenever this happens and and we find out how much players are being played. Uh, for Toronto FC, obviously the main interesting point was Lucas Hansen's salary and the fact that he's making $449,000 in guaranteed compensation uh, as part of a loan deal. He's got two goals, two assists in ten matches, three goals if you count that penalty against Tigris, but I, I don't really count that. Um, the you know the Toronto FC definitely have a bit of a difficult decision ahead in terms of of whether or not to keep Hanson because um, you know it would if at the current rate it would probably push his salary into the designated player range if if they are to buy him outright at the numbers we've heard and been quoted at. Um, so, what are your thoughts on on Hanson and how he's integrated into this Toronto FC team?
1: Yeah, I mean, bye <laughs> you know, bye. But, but I mean that. But that's just me. I mean, you know, Besbichenko and Greg vanny have some very difficult decisions to make this off season, and that involves looking in the mirror, uh, very, very strongly, and assessing what you know what what their core identity is as a club. Because I, we you know in that record-breaking season, you know, when I, I was with the club every single day in, in practice and in matches at home and away, and stuff. You know, I'll tell you, there was a focus. There was a um, and that focus—it was a vision that was shared from the top of the club, from President Bill Manning all the way down. I mean, and, and that even found its way into Jason Bent and and, the, and, and TFC too, and. Beginning in January of uh, 2018, I mean that that focus became split, and we started seeing that immediately with you know Bent leaving TFC two, and with you know Beta Shore being gone and Edwards being gone, and then bringing in uh, you know Oro and Vanderweel and a- Akeche and et cetera, Right, like, and there was a movement away from what was the core that made this team to uh, what what their new identity was going to be. There was like a, I think there was an internal decision to reinvent themselves, albeit. And I, I think that that's problematic. So we need we need to see what they want to be going forward. And I think the first thing is you know we talk a lot or have talked a lot over the last couple of seasons with Greg Benny's decision for shape and how he plays the 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 four four two diamond or and how he also likes to play the the three five two. And I think that there needs to be a consistency where yeah you, you have horses for courses and you can vary, but you have you're you a team with an identity. And if I can say one thing about this TFC club this season is they look lost. They look lost every single game, game in and game out. They. look and decisions didn't go their way sometimes injuries mm-hmm. whatever but they were a team that looked that they didn't they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing or where they were supposed to be or where they were going and they lacked that intensity that comes from a joint vision so i think the first decision that needs to be made comes from the top and that is what is our vision who who are we as a team and what do we want to be going forward and then once you make that decision that allows you to lock in are we are we going forward with michael with Seba and with Josie, and I can't tell you right now with any certainty that I think they are. And uh, so if you if you decide that that's your core and you're going to re- you're going to come back and try and win Champions League in 2019 with that core, then you build out from there and you say, okay, what are the best complementary pieces? And then maybe you you know you keep guys like Delgado in that core core role next to Bradley, or maybe you continue to su- to, to suggest that I know. Um, Hagland and Zavaleta can, can play center back to, uh, together to help you reach that. Or maybe instead what you, you say is, you know what, we're going to keep one of these designated players and we're going to move the other two, uh, or, you know, which I think would be a big move and a bold move, but I wouldn't put it past TFC right now, in which case it allows you to uh, you know, uh, change shape and go forward. But I think that you can't, you can't make any roster decisions or squad decisions on this team until you first make the decision, who are we as a club? and then you decide how do your current three designated players play into that.
0: Yeah, kind of building off of that, of course, we've seen Josie Altidore make some comments that – um, at, at least sort of on the surface seemed to hint towards the fact that he could potentially not be back next season. Now, whether that's posturing, I mean, he he is under contract for next season, but obviously uh, a player of his age, he's probably only got one or two contracts left in professional soccer. Um, you know, we, obviously Sebastian Javinko earlier in the year made it clear that he was kind of displeased with the way his contract negotiations were going. Um, you know, what do you think we see? Because obviously this has been the most, uh, in some ways, chaotic Tronoff FC season since 2014 in terms of uh, the designated players. And like you said, um, if there is a change in of identity at this club, or at least uh, once they figure out that identity, um, th- there is the potential that they might see that one of these aging designated players might not fit into it and uh, have to move on from them.
1: Yeah, the model has changed, right? Atlanta has demonstrated that, the, and, and we're starting to see it now more around the league. You know, if if you want to compete with uh, Liga MX, and 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 you know, the the way to do that is to go out and sign high quality. Uh, Central American, South American players who who are younger, and bring them in as a designated players, so they can use MLS as a stepping stone to Europe. And I think that that's where the MLS model is geared towards. We we saw a lot of this last year at the commissioner's talk at the MLS Cup, where they were discussing you know changes to TAM and GAM and uh, designated player money, and the talk of a fourth designated player. And eventually, this is I think where the league sees its sustainable growth, uh, possibly um, you know you know moving to. From Toronto's standpoint, I mean. If you spoke to Josie, you would know he has no desire to go anywhere. He loves the city of Toronto. He loves these fans. He loves this team. I mean, he's been their best player uh, over the last you know 36 months the reason why they win the MLS cup i mean is josie out was a lot of things but clearly i mean josie altoor big ga- goals in every big game and you know he should have two mls cup game winning goals under his belt if not for one of the greatest saves <laughs> in the history of like uh, you know north american soccer so i mean like he doesn't want to go and, and but i do think that there are that there is some discussion within the club of the idea of, of moving him on. I think it has to do with, again, the money he, he's on. I think it has to do with the amount of uh, time he spent off the field due to injury. And I also think that there are some people who are a little bit frustrated with some of the antics, like including uh, – was it the game against – was it New York City where you know he uh, then gets red carded mm-hmm. in an important an important match early on for no reason, loses his temper, and we saw that a couple of times uh, this season. I – I think Josie. I think you can build this team and continue to build this team around Josie. But I think if you're making difficult decisions, you know, if you can, if you could find a way to turn Josie Altidore into a player who's going to return 15 goals next season for you, and who is seven or eight years younger, and is going to play, you know, thirty five, thirty five games across uh, all competitions, then I think you have to strongly consider that.
0: We talked a bit, or we have talked a bit about changes on the field, Um, off the field. I mean. Uh, Obviously, the coaching staff for now has the kind of the, you know, the management is behind them. It seems Um, Kim Bezbachenko as well, after what they've done the past two seasons, uh, they definitely still have a bit of rope left to work with. Um, but overall, I mean, do you think that there's, there's at least has to be some internal look in terms of uh, not just coaching staff, but everything from game management to, um, you know, even the fitness staff, considering uh, how many things have, have kind of gone wrong this season on so many levels for Toronto FC? I know they've already started to do this a little bit. They're, they're working with a statistics company to kind of uh, better get an idea of, of what the players are doing in training and, and how they can make sure to manage the minutes next season with the way they traveled to Mexico, but uh, how much of a, a learning experience was this year for Toronto FC, especially with uh, the amount of fixture congestion and how much, you know, that's kind of been a thing that at least this club can, can continue to say about itself going into next season is they've proven in the past that they can learn lessons, um, but this one will certainly be the, the toughest one they've had to learn yet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you have to look – you have to get some sports science people in there and look a little bit about what's happening with fitness and conditioning. I mean, the injuries this year were excessive, and maybe it's just the exception to the rule in one of those years where it just kind of happens. And if that's the case, then you move on. And, and, and I mean, they were relatively healthy the season before. So, I mean – uh, is it just that all of a sudden everybody inside the building got bad? I mean, yeah, maybe. I mean, like, it, it happens. Or just, you know, sometimes it's just, like, like I said, the exception to the rule. They'll they'll decide that internally. I mean, but you also mentioned it would you have an aging squad, sometimes that's the issue. I mean, maybe it's weather-related because they're training. A, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a million different reasons or excuses. Maybe it's Argo's at BMO. I mean, like, there's all types of conspiracy theorists out there <laughs> who will posit a variety of reasons as to what went down. What we do know though is that there were too many injuries and there were a lot of players who were supposed to be close to returning and then returned and then went right back out again. And I mean to me that's an issue, right? If you're returning players who are supposed to be ready to play and then within a week or two they're gone again for another sustained absence, that's that's a issue within the medical staff. So hopefully they get that sorted out. As far as Greg Vanny's concerned, I mean if you stuck with him through the whole season, it doesn't make any sense to fire him now. Mm-hmm. I mean that's my, opinion, that's my opinion on it. I mean there was a moment I think in May where you could have legitimately sacked Greg Vanny. Not the thing that I would have, but the last time I was on your show, we talked a little bit about this, right? I think mm-hmm. you at that point you could legitimately say, okay, look, you know what? We had a great run. Everything he's done has been great, but right now things are coming undone, and we we need to change the script of this team and of this season so we can still make the playoffs and, and go forward. And we want to win the, the domestic cup, and we want to get we want to be back in Champions League, and we want to win Champions League, and we still have the players to do it. Let's just change the course. And we see teams do that, and they have success. We saw it, uh, you know, this the, the season in in, in MLS itself and we saw it, you know uh, you know a couple seasons ago with Seattle uh, where uh, you know Siggy Schmidt is a fantastic coach gets sacked and then uh, you know uh, Bryce Setzer's orchestra comes in and uh, you know runs all the way to the MLS Cup I <laughs> mean sometimes the change of the dressing room is enough to to, to, to put everybody on alert like hold on a second I got to fight for 90 minutes because now there's a new guy and I can't just get by on what he thought of me before or whatever it may be and everybody's got to be on their best behavior and that and that can shock the dressing room into change and I do think had, it's easy to say in hindsight, but I said it at the time, too. Like, I do think that if you sack Greg Vennie then, I think they saved the season. I think TFC's in the playoffs right now. I actually think that to be true. However you know, he, he's earned the right to play his way out of this or to manage his way out of this. I mean, he he's had uh, sustained success at Toronto FC, uh, you know, the greatest season in history up until maybe this weekend. Yeah, he, he's won the treble. He, you know, came within really uh, an Alex Bono mistake and, uh, you know, and, and, and pens of winning the Champions League. He came within pens of winning a second MLS Cup. I mean, like, like it, it, it's all been there. And you also mentioned a great point before, Mitchell. Like, this um, coaching staff learns from their mistakes. I will say one thing about Greg Vanney is that he, he, although I've called out their sort of arrogance of TFC earlier in this podcast, I mean he is one of the most self-reflexive people I've met in the business. Like he, he, he looks at his own errors and he walks through how did I make those mistakes and how can I make them better. And we can go all the way back to his first playoff game against Montreal Impact, where he set up wrong and got shelled, and the game was over <laughs> ten, ten minutes in. Mm-hmm. You know, and then the growth of him from there until this point, we, we, he's demonstrated time and time again. He's not afraid to. To make mistakes, to admit his mistakes, and go back over and correct them. So I think that, I think that, because you've you sat through this season, you keep him. And I think that once you just once you make the decision that you're going into next season with him, I think you keep him again. You got to give him the whole season, including the Champions League and the regular season, to play itself out before you make a decision. So if Greg Vanny's the coach of this team January first, I would expect him to also be the coach of the team uh, January or December first of uh, 2019.
0: Well, let's move on from one Reds to another um, and talk quickly about Liverpool. Um, I usually talk to people about their clubs, uh, the clubs they support and the clubs they cover um, on this show quickly, so it's a good window into Europe. Um, And Liverpool, of course, um, for them, a, a milestone for their big player, Mo Salah, 50th, 50th goal, uh, quickest player in Liverpool in history to reach that total. I'm um, doing it in only 65 games. Uh, Albert Stubbins, uh, he took 77 to do it. He was the the previous owner of that record, uh, which what really put it in context for me was the fact that it took Fernando Torres, 84 games, um, kind of, cause that's, that's more my era and a player that, uh, I remember how incredible he was in red. Um, it's, you know, there'd been a lot of criticism of Mo and I think basically everyone has kind of like, not everyone, but a lot of people outside of Liverpool have been kind of waiting for, uh, him to fail after the incredible season he has, la- he had last year, but, um, it, it seems like pretty clear that that wasn't a fluke, and that he's still um, one of the top players in Europe right now.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you not know, you mentioned Torres. You know, that was the one that I think really shocks people. But also, you know, Daniel Sturridge had an incredible uh, first fifty game or a fifty goal uh, run in his first it was eighty-five or ninety games with Liverpool. Suarez as well in his first hundred games. It took him I think nine. It took him over ninety to also to, to score uh, fifty goals. And so, you know, that, that's some pretty good. Quality there, if you just look at the last twenty years. But again, going back through all of Liverpool's history, there's been some great players there. From, I mean, from Doug Leach and Barnes and Rush and Fowler. I mean, there's a lot of great goal scorers for Beardsley. I mean, for for Liverpool, there, there, there's a lot there. You know, depending on uh, on your age. And yeah, Mossall is a fantastic player. Um, nobody, and I mean nobody, expected what they got from him last season. Not even Klopp. Even Klopp said he was amazed by what had happened. And you know. Mo Salah, if you ask Roma fans when, they came, when he came over, they would tell you, yeah, he's, he's, he's awesome, gets himself into great position, but just really doesn't finish the way he should. Mm-hmm. And the, I think the biggest difference is for Liverpool, he, you know, in his first season, he was deathly clinical. And in this season, he's been a little bit wasteful, but I mean that off, that that uh, the offense of Liverpool produces so many opportunities per match, especially with that front three with Naby or, or Naviketa in the midfield, Sadio Mane up top, Roberto Firmino. Now you look at uh, Shaqiri last week, the way he was playing in the Champions League. I mean, they are there there's a lot of chances to to score on this team and. I I would be very surprised if Salah doesn't score 30 goals again this season. And, and going forward, I, I I think that's sort of the annual marker expectation for him. And as long as he's at Liverpool, you, you can expect that. I kind of relate it back, to if I can, just one last thing. It's like to, mm-hmm. to Harry Kane. Like when Kane had his first big season with Spurs, everyone's like, okay, yeah, well, he's had one season. Let's see him do it over and over again. And actually Harry Kane continues to score goals now, uh, you know, you can argue how or what, whatever, but I mean, he continues to score goals at an incredible pace season over season. And I think that with every uh, year that passes, people will say the same about Mo uh, fantastic player and really in the perfect situation for him. Uh, again, playing with Bobby Firmino and Sadio Mane uh, just affords him a lot of space and a lot of opportunity.
0: Another player who's in that mix, but uh, actually hasn't been in the The lineup all that much this season is Fabinho, a player who obviously got brought in at at big money and uh, with with a lot of fanfare from Monaco this offseason. But, uh, you know, we haven't seen him a lot in Klopp's uh, formation. But, of course, we saw him against Red Star Belgrade in the Champions League. And uh, just a fantastic match from him. I mean, reading some of the stats off, six aerial battles won, nine tackles won, and 18 of 24 duels, which is unbelievable. Um, And offensive stats were solid as well. Um, you know, he hasn't been on the t- in the team much, as I said, this year, but um, a good performance for him, and uh, what could that mean going forward uh, for him and this club?
1: I mean, he was, he was a beast. He really was. He was everything he was advertised to be when he came over, and, you know, one of the things that Liverpool had been talking about for some time – over the last several seasons, has been shoring up their spine, getting a, a center back who is big and strong, getting a keeper who can who can who can dominate and make big saves, and, and getting like a, that that whole defensive midfielder who can win tackles. And, you know, and, and so shoring up the spine. We've seen Allison and VVD Van Dijk, where they spent lots of money there, and they you know they've shored that up. And then if you if, if you're able to add a, a defensive midfielder who can play like that game in, game out. I mean, it's going to be really hard to beat Liverpool up top. They are so dominant in their creativity and ability to score. And uh, if Fabinho can continue to play like this, I mean... uh I don't, know what, I don't know what Klopp's going to do for the midfield, right? Because mm-hmm. if you think about it, Naby Keita's out right now, but when Naby Keita comes back, he's got to be one of the first names on your team sheet. We saw what he could do. He's spectacular. Uh, and then, w- w- how do you organize the rest of that that midfield? You've got James Milner, who's played like uh, Benjamin Button for the last 18 months, <laughs> really looking like like he's going backwards in time and can really do anything that, that you need, and as solid as solid can be. You know, led Champions League last season in assists. Uh, you know, you have Henderson, who is the captain, who can't find his way into the team sheet. Shaqiri Showed you in that game against uh, Red Star that I mean he he has all the tools to unlock other teams' defense mm-hmm. and just some a couple gorgeous uh, passes to, to set up uh, you know two, the first two uh, Liverpool goals. Uh, Oxley Chamberlain is injured, but at some point he's going to return. and He's been a core part of this, and I haven't even mentioned Ginny Winaldom, who has probably been the best midfielder for Liverpool across the last twelve months. I mean it is it is a logjam in there, and it gives Klopp lots of options. And I think that uh, it, it's certainly exciting for Liverpool because if you go back to the Champions League final last year, I mean, it's 60 minutes into the match. You're going toe-to-toe with Real Madrid, even though they have clearly, in a very dirty way, injured your best player. Uh, <laughs> And so, you know, what do you do? You're Jurgen Klopp. You look down the bench and all you have is Adam Lallana to be your game changer. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, uh, Zizou gets to like go and put on bail. <laughs> and yeah. we saw what happened going forward. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think as a Liverpool fan right now, you feel a lot more comfortable knowing the, the depth that is there. We haven't seen Klopp's best 11 yet because we haven't seen Fabinho and Kaida get to play together with whoever that third midfielder is going to be. And uh, it's it certainly when the time comes, it'll be exciting. I think the delay has been just sort of letting him get himself uh, situated properly into the Premier League and to understand the system that Klopp wants to play. Uh, and there's, you know, there's lots of games coming up. So we'll get it, We'll hopefully get a chance to see that soon.
0: Yeah. A lot of those games, of course, will come in the Champions League and that group has just been fantastic so far. I mean, If you want to talk about close groups in Europe, it doesn't get much closer than Liverpool on 6, Napoli on 5 and PSG on 4. Of course I feel kind of bad for Red Star. I mean uh, I feel especially bad for Canadian goalkeeper Milan Borean who's had to kind of stand. I, I thought he was actually pretty solid against Liverpool, uh, making some big saves, but uh, he's he's been in there for uh, a lot of goals, and to, at least he gets a lot of face time, because he's on a lot of <laughs> highlight shows across Europe right now, um, but at he any made, rate, he, he, made, he made a great yeah.
1: save, a great save against Mo Salah about 10 minutes into the game to deny Salah and would have been a breakaway, mm-hmm. and then he also stopped a penalty, uh, penalty uh, kick from uh, Sadio Mane as well, so I mean, like, he, 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 he was excellent. On that grouping, though, Mitchell, think about this, right? Liverpool PSG last second goal decides the outcome of that game mm-hmm. Liverpool Napoli last second goal decides the outcome of that game Napoli PSG last second goal decides the the outcome of that game it, it, what a what a fantastic
0: grouping for just the neutral soccer fan and uh, for Liverpool they have Cardiff this weekend um, I think we've definitely seen in the past Liverpool been able to hang with the big boys. I mean, they've caused Manchester City fits. Uh, most times they've played them in the past couple of years. Uh, they've been good against all the other top teams, but it's kind of been those games, maybe not against the Cardiffs of the world, but those kind of mid-table teams that have been struggles for Liverpool in the past. We've heard a lot going into the season, of course, about how Klopp's system and the way he likes to play can't be sustained for a full season. Uh, but we've definitely seen a Liverpool side this year that's won a lot of the games they're supposed to win, even if it's you know uh, a, you know just a one 0 win over Huddersfield or something like that. They've still picked up three points. How important is that going forward in terms of uh, the campaign to to win the Premier League?
1: Yeah, I mean the the big thing that they always my my buddy Simon Brundish over at Anfield Index always says is right beat the dross, win the league, right? That's that's the that's how you have to do it. You have to pick up those three points where you can. I mean but I mean, listen, Liverpool they've already gone through a, the hardest part of their schedule at least for the, the in the first half of the season. Between now and and Christmas, you know, they yes they have arsenal but i mean there's there's not a lot of, of heavy matches in there you know they they've played city and they've played united and they've played chelsea and they've played spurs and they've played Leicester, and, and, and adding to that of course chelsea in the domestic uh, cup and, and P- psg and napoli in champions league but domestically so far in this season they've only conceded 3 goals and they've played against you know arguably uh, the, all all the best teams in in england i mean you can throw arsenal there in, in there if you want and we'll find out in just a couple of weeks what that looks like but They've only conceded three goals so far this season. So, I mean, finding goals against Liverpool becomes more and more difficult. I think there's a variety of reasons. One, I think Allison is spectacular as a keeper and a great signing. You know, Van Dijk, I think, is a fantastic signing. So they've paid the money and they've got, they've got it back. And I think the absence of Dejan Lovren has, has helped the club as well. So Joe Gomez has stepped in and done a, and done a great job there. But also not having Lovren <laughs> on there has helped them uh, exceptionally well. And as long as they as long as they're not conceding you know, one to two goals a match, which is what they were doing previously before Van Dyke arrived uh, here uh, in Liverpool, I mean, like I said, they're going to be very, very difficult to beat uh, in, in England, and the clubs like Cardiff, for example, or, or Huddersfield, who, who, who you mentioned, or, or whether it be whatever, Fulham, uh, Burnley, although Burnley's pretty, you know, Burnmouth, Wolves, these teams are really going to struggle to find goals against Liverpool, and that's, that's, That's difficult because you know that Liverpool is going to find ways to score goals against you.
0: We have one more set of Reds to talk about before we finish up. There's a lot of different teams named the Reds, but I'm talking about the Canadian men's under-20 team uh, who get underway in the CONCACAF U-20 Championship on November 2nd. They're playing in a group with Dominica, Guadeloupe, St. Kitts, Martinique, and their biggest competitor in Panama – four teams um, from this tournament will advance to qualify to the U20 World Cup. Uh, Canada they announced their roster earlier this weekend. Uh there, there was a bit of a surprise because a lot of big names uh, in terms of their their top talent at that age group were left off the list. No Alfonso Davies, no Balu Tabla, no Liam Miller. Um, And no Jonathan David. I'm not surprised by a couple of those names um, just because, uh, I mean, a guy like Jonathan David, you're not really going to convince Ghent to to let him go for a youth tournament uh, that's not even during an international window. But um, it seems to buy into a Herdman philosophy that we saw a little bit with the women's team that once you're kind of graduated from that youth level of football, uh, he rarely sends you back to the under-20 team. What do you make of, of kind of this decision? Because obviously a lot of those players, Liam Miller, um, Blue Tabla, are still playing in that kind of secondary team football, um, but they, they're going to be with the senior national team. It looks like for their game away to St. Kitts in the nation's league instead of uh, being sent down to the age group tournament.
1: I, I think absolutely. It's the right decision. I think that part of the growth of the men's national team is going to be built around that core young group. So I think part of the decision to to allow himself to be capped, if we're talking about Blue Tabla with the with the men's national team in Canada instead of uh, Ivory Coast, mm-hmm. is the, the, there must have been some discussion there with Herdman that said, look. We're going to come. You're going to play for the men's team now, and going forward, you're only going to play, uh, you know, with with the men's team. And I like the idea of progression there. That you know, like it, it creates competition uh, both for the, for the younger players coming up and a little bit of hunger, right? If you can prove that you're good enough to play at the men's level, you can get there. And now we've got more competition at the U20 level from from a more diverse group of players. I mean, there there are some players there that are, that are st- still. Uh, fairly decent uh you know it's not it's not the the greatest crop of players but you know we're gonna see some of those players like julian dunn for example on mm-hmm. the on the on the men's team in the not so in the not so distant future um i think there's a few too many players in there i mean it's a smaller amount of tfc2 players which i'm kind of and tfc academy players which i'm kind of happy about because i don't think the quality is necessarily there and a surprisingly higher number of vancouver uh um, and uh, Montreal Academy players than maybe we've seen previously. But I, I think it's good. Let, let's have competition at the U20 and let's have those players fighting for the, for the, for the opportunity to be called up to, to, to get capped at, at, for, for the men's national team. And I don't think it's just Herman, I think DeVos is involved in this too. I mean, we saw him on the bench, uh, you know, now is, is in a sort of assistance coach uh, role now with the men's national team in addition to his uh, role with uh, player development at, at the grassroots level across the, the nation. So I think the, they're sort of joined uh, at the hip, and we're going. this is part of the new movement of, of Canadian soccer.
0: This tournament, of course, is a bit extra interesting because – This is kind of the age group, and we mentioned some of the players that might not be participating, but a lot of these players uh, will be in their prime come the 2026 World Cup. Um, How much should we read into a tournament like this in terms of uh, the development of Canadian players? Because I know there's certainly some people who will... Be very upset if Canada doesn't qualify for for you know the CONCAC or sorry the uh, U twenty World Cup, but um, you know youth tournaments to some degree don't always reflect uh, the future, although sometimes they do. In the case of a side like England,
1: yeah, I was thinking about the you know when we when we hosted the the U twenty World Cup here in in uh, Toronto, Mm -hmm. you know we got we got to see the likes of some great young players like Luis Suarez, right, Uh, playing for Uruguay for example. It's just one, and then you know and you just say, "Oh, we're going to see that guy again pretty soon." I do think that um, maybe the uh, you know it, the push for more younger players playing at uh, an in, in international level. Like, I mean, everybody's not a, a Kylian Mbappé, right? For example, Mbappé, M- M- for example, right? Mm-hmm. But I do think that when you see a player that young excel at the actual uh, FIFA World Cup. There, there's, uh, you know, maybe a little bit of a trickle down effect of that, where it's like a trickle down effect, where other other uh, nations are like, oh, we've got some players who are pretty good who are younger too. Let's play them out in in, in the in, in the big scene and see what that looks like. So you might get a little bit more uh, going forward, especially now with the the new tournaments that are that are emerging in Europe <laughs> and in North, and, in, and in North America it's, in, in the in-between World Cups as an opportunity to help sort of rank uh, where, where countries stand. I mean I, I think you might start to see more younger players like more teenagers and more U20s getting the chance to play for their uh, for the men's national teams of their country. but I, yeah I mean it's it's a great chance to see uh, what the next group of players coming down the pipeline is like and for a nation like Canada, where we have so many good quality players that we don't even know about because we don't get to see them, uh, because we don't have our own domestic league, although that's changing very soon. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is this is a great opportunity to play a lot of that talent out at, at, a, at a highly competitive level to see how they measure against the rest of the world.
0: And before I get you out of here, um, you were initially fairly critical of the Herdman hire uh, I think a lot of us were were kind of questioning it, of course, the way it went down and um, how everything played out there. Obviously, I think we need to see the the men's national team in, in fully competitive games. I think this, this summer's Gold Cup will be a, a good indicator and obviously the, the most important thing being the 2022 World Cup qualifying cycle. Uh, but what have you made of Herdman so far and what he's he's said and done as Canadian men's national team manager?
1: Well, you know, first off, I was extremely critical of the hire, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and, and rightfully so, because the, the issue with my issue with the hire, as I said on multiple shows that I went on, but radio, television, podcast, was not that they were naming John Herdman as the Canadian coach. It was the way in which they went about doing it. It was the lack of transparency. It was the backroom uh, back, uh, deals that went about to, to, to have it happen. And then the, the sheer silence by Canada Soccer uh, after the announcement and the erasing of Octavio Zambrano from uh, sort of any history or any, any, any process that had gone on before. And the players that I had spoke to play played for Canada currently and who had played for Canada before, uh, retired players and, and players who played under Octavio but aren't playing now, uh, you know, and, and even you know, people within Canada soccer all said the same thing that you know no one was happy with how the, the, the deal itself went down. Uh, so, I mean, that was where my issue was. And I mean, I was so critical of it that I had my press credentials removed by Canadian soccer. So huh. I'm no longer, uh, accredited to cover Canadian soccer. Although maybe that's changing because Jason DeVos and I are currently doing a project together on youth soccer development. And I'm currently, um, involved with them with another project. So maybe now they'll reconsider, <laughs> uh, let, letting me cover the team again. We'll, we'll see, although I'll be in Australia for 2019. So <laughs> I, won't, I won't have to ca- cover too much. Uh, so, you know, that was my criticism. I mean, as for, John Herdman as as the coach of the men's national team. You know, listen, it was it was a it, w- it was right for anybody to 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 say, "Okay, that's an interesting hire, someone who has no experience ever in coaching men's soccer at a at a, at sort of the the highest level is going to step in and do that job." Now, full credit to him. I mean, he's done what's needed to happen since then. He's been able to bring the guys together, so people are buying in. He has all the top talent that's domestic and overseas coming to play for him. I mean, we, we're, we're seeing what that looks like. Guys aren't saying, no, I don't want to play for Canada or I'm going to go play for a different country. He's been able to cap Balutabla, uh, which I think is a, a, a massive step as well. And so, I mean, there is cohesion there and there is a shared vision and a shared focus. And maybe that's 2026 or maybe it's even shorter than that. But guys are bought in and, and they're moving forward. Canada skyrocketing, skyrocketing up the the rankings. There we're now. What are we? Seventy six or something like that. Mm-hmm. We're 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 pretty close to like you know the, you know we're, we're certainly under a hundred for the first time in a long time and continuing to rise. I think it was a good time to come in because the talent was there and the opportunity to rise in the rankings was coming. We saw that in in the last gold cup that Canada could. Could push forward, but I think John Herdman deserves uh, full credit for what he's done. hundred uh, percent. I mean, like I said, the Canada, Canada soccer is on the rise, and Herdman is the the men's national coach and the head of that program. And so, as it rises, he deserves full credit for all the accomplishments that come forward. Uh, you know, and and keep going. That's what I say. Con- continue to do so and prove, you know, me and, and all the other people wrong as well. I'm quite happy to see that.
0: Yeah, for sure. It's an exciting time. It seems like for the first time, and uh, certainly since I've been following this team, there seems like something every week that there's ha- that's happening positively w- somewhere within Canadian soccer, be that the Canadian Premier League, um, on the women's side even, and on the men's side as well. So uh, hopefully, as you said, we keep moving forward and that continues, but um, we're going to bring this show t- at least to an end. Uh, thank you for joining, Steve.
1: My pleasure. Any time, you know, it's, it's been fun. I haven't chatted with you in a while, and I actually haven't chatted with TFC in a while. I've been doing a little bit of Liverpool stuff, but I haven't had a chance to, to sort of get a lot of that TFC stuff off my chest, so that felt really good. It felt, it felt really healthy, actually. I feel I feel cleansed. Yeah. I'm, I'm and feeling good going into Sunday. Yeah,
0: hopefully this experience was as cathartic for all of you listening out there as well, <laughs> uh, and, and looking forward to seeing a number of you at our El Clasico event on Sunday. Enjoy your weekend, everyone.